Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone. Welcome to the History of England, episode 294, Alarms and Excursions. Before I start, let me remind you that I remain a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, which I've not mentioned for a while, so about time I did. You can find a smorgasbord of excellent podcasts at agorapodcastnetwork.com. Now, I am very pleased to announce that we've just been joined by Sam Hume, who you may remember because he's done a guest episode here in this very parish. He has two podcasts. There's Pax Britannica, a history of the British Empire, and a history of witchcraft, which is, well, I'm going to leave you to guess what it's about. Both of them are fab, so check them out. You might find it best to go straight to paxbritannica.info or just search for Pax Britannica on your local podcatcher. This week, let us turn away from all that court and marriage stuff we've been messing about at and return to serious, hard history, to foreign policy. Now, I sense outrage. Policy? I hear you roar. Policy? But you yourself have poured scorn on the very idea of policies in the Tudor era, Crowther. We have heard a guest episode from Zach Twembley poo-pooing the very idea in Henry VIII's reign. So, now what? Policy? What is this? The rise of the great powers? Balance of power theory? Or what? Well, maybe you're not as argumentative as that, but it would be fair comment. We are still not in the era, I suppose, of formal bureaucracies leading discussions of policy towards various different countries. And yet, there was a policy to Elizabethan foreign affairs, or at least a set of assumptions and values that drove it. It is true to say that Elizabeth rarely sends armies marching around, and so there's a general absence of clear decisions, you might say, but as Geddy and the boys carefully explained in Free Will, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. So, 
If there was some sort of policy in Elizabeth's international relations, however vague, what was it? What principles drove it? Well, the received wisdom, or at least the wisdom from wise historians, is that Elizabeth was essentially about realpolitik, a policy based on the art of the possible rather than on one of principle, and one driven by the sort of dynastic concerns, such as reclaiming Calais, for example, or security, so working to prevent an encircling Franco-British realm, for example, or undermining their enemies such as, should I need to say it, the French. After all, generations of English noblemen stretching back into time immemorial essentially saw their role as one of killing Frenchmen, and I'm only partly joking. Or finally, the policy of defending trading interests, for which read the Low Countries the most important destination by far for English products and its most important source. This is a framework for the principle that drove Elizabeth's foreign ventures, which owes a lot to our old friend William Camden, or at least I believe he's become our friend now, we've heard so much about him. Writing in James I's reign, Camden stressed Elizabeth's aversion to Calvinists, particularly in the form of John Knox, but Calvinists generally. Camden does this, though, to dissociate Elizabeth from the later Jacobin Puritans. A tradition has grown up, though, of the practical, solutions-oriented, common-sense approach to foreign affairs of a queen not really terribly bothered about religious considerations. This is a view which ties in nicely with English prejudices. We like to think of ourselves as an unexcitable bunch, not much given to the kind of highfalutin principal stuff that the French get aerated about, all those revolutions and things. This is a view I indeed held myself before I had the misfortune of watching Big Brother and heard the screams and squeals as the contestants emerged, all that hugging and kissing and so on. Seriously, real men don't cry or hug. Anyway, moving on. The other preconception is that Elizabeth was herself not dogmatic about her religion. She wanted unity, and so she tried to find a middle way in her religious settlement rather than having firm beliefs on particular dogma that would affect foreign relationships. And thus, the traditional view has generally stayed. And yet, it's interesting that England's traditional orientation in foreign affairs was entirely changed in Elizabeth's reign from previous decades. In 1589, William Cecil wrote to the Earl of Shrewsbury, The state of the world is marvellously changed when we true Englishmen have cause for our own quietness to wish good success to a French king and a king of Scots. And yet, they both differ one from the other in profession of religion. But seeing both are enemies to our enemies, we have cause to join with them in their actions against our enemies. I imagine Shrewsbury grunting unhappily and scrawling too much repetition of the word enemies, Bill, in the margin, but Cecil was reflecting a couple of things. Firstly, England's orientation had always been against France, and she had frequently looked to support from the Empire, or from Spain, or Aragon. She'd allied with Burgundy, against France. Secondly, Cecil seems to be marvelling at the lack of confessional influence on policy. France was Catholic, Scotland Protestant. Along with this tradition of pragmatism is a reputation for parsimony, meanness, 
thrift, a desire for foreign influence and security on a shoestring budget. Now, of course, Cecil shouldn't really have been so surprised, should he? I mean, he's a bright guy, isn't he? And it should have been obvious to anyone that war with Spain was inevitable, eventually, surely. After all, for Philip II, defending Catholicism was a matter of conscience rather than expediency, and England was a major Protestant nation. I think you're guessing that a but is coming. So, but me no buts, Bernard. Let's deal with the inevitability of conflict with Catholic Spain first. This is where a healthy reminder is helpful. One day, England will join the ranks of the great powers, even top the league for a while. But that is a long way off. England was very rarely on the top of Philip's list in the 16th century. Firstly, because we're still a small, damp island with a budget relative to the empire and France of Tuppence Hapney. Secondly, because Philip stood at the head of an empire on which the sun never set, extraordinarily complex. In the early days of Elizabeth's reign, he was far more concerned about his traditional enemy France and then about French religious strife, fearing that she'd become Protestant. At the same time, he was worried about Turkish naval power and control of the Mediterranean, amongst other things. England? Where's that? England me know England's Bernard. I mean, I exaggerate for effect, but England was low down the priority list, and it's probably more the Dutch revolt that leads to war with England in the 1580s, rather than Philip's desire to convert England back to Catholicism, though that, of course, was indeed his desire. The second but, then, is about the pragmatism thing, the lack of confessional principle. Don't be so sure, is I think where I would go on this. The historian and archivist David Trim argues that confessionalism does indeed drive Elizabethan foreign policy. It's true to say that England was not in the market to export Protestantism in quite the way that the Habsburgs were for Catholicism, seeking to reimpose Catholicism wherever possible. But there's quite clear evidence that diplomatic thinking encompassed the idea that Protestant countries should work together. So in Scotland, the policy was never one of conquest, it was about the triumph of Protestantism to build a Protestant British Isles. Elizabeth approached the German Lutheran states to try and build relationships and encourage their support for other states with the Reformed religion. As we will see, in the early 1560s, England intervenes with boots on the ground in both France and Scotland. Many diplomats believe that England, and Elizabeth in particular, were driven by a desire to export Protestantism. The Spanish ambassador warned that Elizabeth would seek to raise Protestant revolt in France, Scotland and Flanders. And the same ambassador noted with horror that England was quick to offer refuge for Protestants from Catholic persecutions. How could they? He remarked of London that he was quite astounded to see the flocks of heretics who come either to the city and are well received. It is through this that we know the collective noun, the heretic, the flock. I'm sure there should be something more exciting, an outrage of heretics, for example, or a conflagration, ideas on a postcard. Meanwhile, though, Elizabeth was keen to encourage Protestantism in the Low Countries, sending the fiercely Calvinistic William Haddon on a mission to Bruges in 1561. That gloomy Spanish ambassador again predicted that Elizabeth was thinking hard about how to 
Oost Philip from the Netherlands. And she believes the best way to affect this is to embroil them over there on religious questions. I bet he and Cecil got on like a house on fire, gloomily predicting imminent disaster in their respective fields. As a further example, in the early 1560s, Nicholas Throckmorton, another passionate Calvinist, was appointed as ambassador to Paris, where it was reported that he worked openly with Huguenot resistance. And finally, there is the impact of public opinion. There emerges in Elizabeth's reign the idea of a public space, which you must cover sometime, which gives public opinion greater power, leverage and influence. The trend is influenced by greater levels of literacy, by newsprint, chapbooks, ballads that are circulated freely and sung or read in pubs and at home. And public opinion was often fiercely concerned with religion and Catholic conspiracy. So the argument goes, quite convincingly, that English policy was indeed relentlessly oriented towards support for Protestantism, and that policy pursued not just future allies against Catholic aggression, but out of fellow feeling for Protestants to achieve collective action and freedom of conscience for them in Catholic countries. Well, maybe. We'll see. The traditional approach is to see blocks emerging in Elizabeth's Privy Council between firebrandy and interventionist types like Dudley and Walsingham, up against the cautious Cecil, and a Queen then who shared his caution and brought a politique unconfessional approach as well. Let us see what we think, but it is worth saying that whatever the motivation was, it is hard in the later 16th century to ignore a ruler's religion in international deals. And the reorientation of English policy is quite dramatic in the medium term, away from Spain, as I've mentioned. But although this supports the argument for a Protestant-oriented policy, it is also true that it's hard to tell, because allying with Protestant countries probably ticked the security box anyway, and so is not of itself evidence of English support for the exportation of Protestantism as a religious policy aim. In this episode, then, we are in what is termed England's activist period, where Elizabeth took action to intervene. Let us first hie to Scotland. In 1559, then, England is firmly fixated on France, and through France, to Scotland. I think I have covered that French ambition extended to a Franco-Scottish state, to be ruled by Mary, Queen of Scots and Francis II when he succeeded to the throne, and that the current French King Henry II had persuaded Mary anyway to sign away her rights if she died without an heir to France. I'm sure also that I have mentioned the peace of Cato Cambrasis in May 1559, which finally put an end to the Habsburg-Valois conflict, and incidentally did not return Calais to England. However, the negotiators kept their heads because there was a face-saving formula whereby England would get it back after eight years or France would buy it. In Scotland, Mary of Guise had been regent since 1550 and done a pretty good job for many years of keeping the Franco-Scottish realm from falling to pieces from the centripetal forces of regionalism and confessionalism. Mary of Guise followed a policy of careful coexistence of traditional and reformed religion. 
but her room for manoeuvre shrunk and squeezed as the decade went on. Confessional lines began to be drawn much more clearly in Scotland, as Privy Kirks offered reformed practice all over the country, and preachers travelled from place to place. So whereas the strength of kinship had often prevented conflict or allowed local deals to be struck between Catholic and Protestant, confessionalism began to trump kinship. Although Mary had been careful to avoid heretic trials and executions, Archbishop James Beaton achieved a public relations disaster with the burning of an elderly Walter Milne in April 1558. And now that the English had been firmly kicked out for some time and Scotland was safe, the disbenefits of having the French over in force instead began to raise discontent, as Mary tried to introduce some elements of French approaches to government and Frenchmen in key positions dominated government too. From the other end of the stick, Henry II of France became less patient of accommodation for the Scottish Protestantism and the approach of toleration looked as though it was wobbling. The Catholic Guise faction, Mary's relations, the Duke of Guise and the Cardinal of Lorraine, influenced Henry to seek to wipe out the French Huguenots and Scottish Protestants. So the Scottish lords were faced by a Mary of Guise no longer prepared to offer public concessions to the Protestants. As a result, in 1557, a group of Protestant lords had formed the Lords of the Congregation, seeking to spread the Protestant religion in Scotland. The Lords of the Congregation began to offer an opposition to Mary's regency. By October 1559, the Lords had rather stalled, however, and it was to England that they now looked for support. Or more specifically, they looked to Cecil. William Cecil remembered the positive bit of the rough wooing, the idea of a Protestant British Isles, which offered security to England from the threat of a Catholic Franco-Scotland. But it took Cecil months to build support in the Privy Council for it, and more especially with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was very chary of the idea of supporting rebels against their monarch. It would set a very poor precedent. Though... Given that Mary of Guise was a regent and not a monarch, the idea was a little more palatable in Scotland. Cecil corresponded with the lords of the congregation and managed to get to the point where he could write to them that rather than that the realm should be with a foreign nation and power oppressed, the authority of England would adventure with power and force to aid that realm against any such foreign invasion. Into this tinderbox came the news that Henry II had been killed in France by a freak jousting accident. The reality had therefore come to pass. Francis II and his Queen Mary I of Scotland were now monarchs of France and Scotland. And Nicholas Throckmorton reported that they quartered the arms of England on theirs. Effectively, Mary was claiming the throne of England as well as Scotland, because in the eyes of Catholic powers, Elizabeth was a bastard, and Mary I was therefore the rightful monarch of England too. Quartering the arms could be described possibly as a little inflammatory. Cecil started laying eggs. He also started laying strategy papers, and in August 1559, it was probably him that produced the 
memorial of certain points meet for restoring the realm of Scotland to the ancient wheel. It's actually a rather radical document. In it, Cecil advanced the argument that Scotland and England must be allied and must both be Protestant and should be ruled by the Scottish Parliament with reference to their king and queen in France. And frankly, if the king and queen in France didn't agree with this constitution, in respect of the greedy and tyrannous affection of France, then they should both be deposed, and the succession moved along to the next heir. I might note that by 1563 and the petition of Parliament in England to the Queen that she get her skates on and get married, Cecil will twice have proposed a succession plan in both Scotland and England that relied on the rule of a council appointed by Parliament rather than simply the operation of heredity on which monarch rules next. Under that rather severe and traditional exterior, beat the heart of a bit of a wicked radical in Cecil. However, the petition was again not a completely waste of time when it was refused. The Queen did agree to clandestine financial support for the Scottish rebels, and English gold found its way north of the border. But no military intervention. Yet. In December, in increasing desperation, the Lords of the Congregation sent an envoy down to London. This was one William Maitland of Lethington, who will be a part of the story for the next few years. Here is a fierce intellect and talent, deeply committed to Protestantism. His great skills as a politician won him many enemies. He was known as Michael Wiley, upon on Machiavelli, or known as Chameleon, according to the Scottish author George Buchanan. He shared the vision of a Protestant union and corresponded frequently with Cecil. Elizabeth recognised his talents, describing him as the flower of the wits of Scotland. Mary Queen of Scots was also aware of Maitland and when she returned to Scotland would make him her principal secretary, although warning him to stop corresponding with England off his own bat. Anyway, Maitland came to England to ask for military support against France. Mary of Guise's forces already had the congregation on the run and news was that a major new contingent of troops was planned from France, 15,000 German mercenaries, according to Cecil's intelligence. Still, Elizabeth remained to be convinced, the Congregationalists were rebels. On the 27th of December, the Privy Council debated and agreed to petition Elizabeth for military intervention in Scotland, and Cecil formally presented the proposal to the Queen. On the back of the paper are scrawled the words, not allowed by the Queen, which hides a river of tears, because Cecil was besides himself. He went as far as to draft a letter of resignation to the Queen. He was like a bug, impaled on a thorn by a shrike. It was his duty to offer advice to the Queen, and yet the pain of her refusal to accept that advice had him wriggling around in mortal pain. How's the shrike metaphor working out for you, by the way? Hopefully there are some twitchers out there. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's not clear if Cecil actually sent his letter of resignation to the Queen, but he continued to badger and he continued to nag in the finest tradition of a bored teenager. And bit by bit, he talked Elizabeth round. In January 1560, an English fleet appeared in the Firth of Forth, guarding against any French reinforcements sent by sea. And then eventually, Elizabeth agreed to muster an army. And by March 1560, Cecil agreed the Treaty of Berwick with the rebels. Honestly, the performance of the English troops was, shall we say, patchy. But the French had a run of bad luck which sank their campaign. Firstly, their fleet bringing the reinforcements was lost in a storm. On the 15th of March, the French Huguenots, that is French Protestants, tried to seize the Duke of Guise and King of Francis and the French religious conflict formed a major distraction to goings-on in Scotland. And then... The final straw was the death of Mary of Guise on the 11th of June. Within a month, Cecil had negotiated the Treaty of Edinburgh with the Lords and the French, though it needed to be ratified by Queen Mary before it would be operational. The treaty was a triumph for Cecil. All foreign troops were to be removed from Scotland and France was to recognise Elizabeth's right to the English throne and stop half-inching the English arms for the use in their own. For the moment, there were dodos which looked more healthy than the idea of Franco-Scotland. Whether it could be revived depended on Francis II. Cecil's plan for a Protestant British Isles took a big step forward in 1560 with the Scottish Reformation Parliament. The Reformation Parliament made Scotland officially a Protestant country and rejected the authority of the Pope. But it did not remove the Catholic Church or its infrastructure. Many Scots were probably still Catholic at this point, and the Catholic Church would limp on for some time in increasing pain, but its future in Scotland looked very bleak. And then, in December 1560, Francis II died too. For Mary, Queen of Scots, this was both a personal and political disaster. Mary had spent most of her life in France. She was now 18. With Francis's death and the continuing ramping up of the French religious conflict, Mary's future in France was effectively all over. Her family, the Guise, tried to organise another marriage, but to no avail, and Mary now faced the opposition of her mother-in-law and regent, Catherine de' Medici, who wanted her gone from the French court. So Mary made preparations to return to Scotland, going on a tour of France to visit her relatives one last time, and meeting representatives from Scotland. These representatives gave her conflicting advice. The advice from the Earl of Huntley, head of the Gordon family, and one of the two families, along with the Campbell Earls of Argyll, who dominated the Highlands and Western Islands, was a Catholic. He proposed that Mary land near Aberdeen, and together they would march on Edinburgh and bring Scotland back to Catholicism. The other adviser was Lord James Stuart, another man like Maitland who will be part of Scotland's story for a long time. 
James Stewart was Mary's half-brother, illegitimate son of Mary's father James V and Margaret Erskine. Mary will very soon make him Earl of Murray, so we're going to call him Murray from the start, excepting that I've gone a little early. I apologise to all you purists out there, and for the rest of this episode, whenever I say Murray, you have my full permission to grit your teeth, or indeed any part of your anatomy you choose to grit, and mutter Lord James Stuart to yourself. Anyway, Murray was another Protestant, but one who had only recently left the French side to join the congregation. He was ambitious, clever and politically astute. He advised Mary to accept the Scottish religious settlement, which was essentially one of toleration, Protestant and Catholic churches side by side. As Queen, it was important that Mary upheld the official religion publicly, but she would be able to practice Catholicism in her own chapel of Holyrood House in private. Mary's instincts were very much towards conciliation and she accepted Murray's advice. By August 1561, she was back in Scotland and initially at least her skills at conciliation, her charm and authority brought the Scottish political nation back together again. At the same time, she sent her principal secretary Maitland to England to start a long, complex and frankly mind-blowingly tedious diplomatic process with Cecil and with Elizabeth. Mary was extremely concerned to have her rights of succession to the English throne recognised and will do all her life. For Mary, this is partly about the attractions of her personal glory, but more about simply enforcing what she firmly believed to be her God-given right. But also, because she felt that recognition of her right to England was a requirement to establish her rule in Scotland, a bulwark against the factionism of the lords on the council. Her succession, by the way, in her view, would be after Elizabeth died, or if Elizabeth died without an heir. On the English side, of course, Elizabeth, as we have discussed, hated the thought of recognising a successor around whom might coalesce rebellion. For her and the Privy Council... The real issue was whether or not Mary would ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh, which she steadfastly refused to do. And so back and forth they went. There's a personal dynamic too going on. Mary was desperately keen to establish a loving relationship with her sister, Elizabeth, as she called her, though not at the expense of being seen in any way as inferior in status. Elizabeth was equally fascinated by Mary, but very circumspect and a little jealous. This is a show that will run and run. Cecil was very worried that if the two of them did meet, he would lose control, and Mary in particular pushed very hard for a meeting. In 1562, came very, very close, and a meeting was planned for York, but at the last moment, events conspired to distract Elizabeth, and she cancelled. Let us leave Scotland for a while then, in terms of our earlier argument, we might note the conflict in Elizabeth between her dynastic reluctance to intervene against another monarch as against the desire for security and the call of support for Protestantism. Within a year, the supposedly reluctant militarist Elizabeth would once more be embroiled in military action over religious conflict. This time, the theatre was France. Religious conflict at the French court grew steadily, and the English ambassador, Nicholas Throgmorton, was alarmed at the prospects for the Protestant side. Throgmorton was a convinced Calvinist, 
and from 1560 he was advocating intervention and talking to the leader of the Huguenot, Louis de Bourbon, the Prince of Condé. In this, Throckmorton was joined by Robert Dudley, and it's been argued that over this affair, Robert first emerged as a voice in policy-making. Dudley Diddley favoured intervention and took Throckmorton under his wing as his protégé. He was probably joined by Cecil, though it seems Cecil would have preferred to stop short of feet on the ground. In March 1562, tensions in France escalated with the massacre of Vassy, when the Catholic Duke of Guise had 63 Huguenots killed and hundreds wounded. Both sides started to arm, and the Huguenot leaders Condé and Coligny sent envoys to England to discuss the possibility of English intervention on their side. Negotiations were led by Diddley at Hampton Court. Elizabeth once again took some persuading. There were two considerations in her mind, probably. The first was that the prospect of a Guise and Catholic victory in France was reasonably scary, on the same basis as a victory in Scotland would have been. England wanted Condé and Coligny, at the very least, to survive as a bulwark against possible French Catholic aggression and to promote the cause of Protestantism. But secondly, an intriguing possibility emerged in discussions. The Huguenots controlled the French port of Le Havre. If the English supported the Huguenots, the English could be given control of Le Havre against the future return of Calais. Now, which of these considerations, the eternal triangle of Protestantism, security and the return of Calais, meant the most to Elizabeth, is moot. In September 1562, the treaty was signed and an English army of 6,000 set off for Le Havre and a loan of £30,000 was agreed for Condé. Dudley became a member of the Privy Council and in terms of influencing policy-making, he had arrived. He was no longer just the Queen's fancy man. At this point, October 1562 that is, Elizabeth and her English subjects had a bit of a scare. On the night of the 10th, Elizabeth complained of a fever and that fever turned out to be the arrival of smallpox. Cecil started laying eggs again. Elizabeth's death would be the arrival of his nightmare, a disputed succession. During her illness, Elizabeth felt close enough to death to confess her sins, none of which included sex with Dudley as it happens, and she made Dudley the protector of the realm should she die. As it happens, Elizabeth recovered. It is speculated that the illness may have left Elizabeth's skin heavily pockmarked, it often did, and maybe this was the start of Elizabeth's habit of smearing thick layers of white makeup onto her face. But it's just guesswork, we don't quite know when that starts. But while I'm on this digression, Elizabeth certainly does start wearing heavy makeup and a wig at some point. When Elizabeth got up in the morning, then, it was quite a process. She used a liberal supply of war paint and her ladies applied a wide array of unguents, curd for the forehead to keep it from going all wrinkly, a cleansing lotion made from two freshly laid eggs and their shells, burnt alum, powdered sugar, borax and poppy seeds ground with water. Then she treated her entire face, neck and hands with ceruse, which is a nasty sounding mixture of white lead and vinegar. The idea was to give her the best, palest, possible complexion, since dark skin was of course evidence of working under the sun all day and therefore of being a peasant. 
Her lips were painted a vivid red and coal used around the eyes. The thing is that some of these were toxic, especially the ceruse, and Elizabeth probably had this white face paint applied more and more thickly as time went on. The habit spread because the court wanted to show their solidarity with the Queen, and so the ladies of the household in particular did the same thing. Anyway, back to war in France. The commander of the 6,000-man army that arrived in Le Havre was Dudley's brother, Ambrose, the Earl of Warwick, another Calvinist, and the strength of Calvinists amongst his officers suggested a religious angle to the appointment as well as the obvious connection with Dudley. It has to be said that things didn't go that well. The English arrived too late to make a difference in the defence of Rouen, which duly fell to the Catholics. Immediately afterwards, in March 1563, the Huguenots and Catholics met in a bloody battle at Dreux. Both sides suffered high losses, but the Catholics held the field and captured the Prince of Condé. At this point, the French agreed the Peace of Amboise between them. The Huguenots were given a certain amount of religious toleration, but with services restricted to the houses of noblemen and a few specified towns. The events of 1562-3 had been seen as purely a miserable failure for the English. But it should be said that the presence of the English army at Le Havre gave the Huguenots a negotiating power they would not otherwise have had at Amboise, so not completely useless. But that's the high point. The English army had by now come down with plague. Meanwhile, Elizabeth kept the army there, angling for a swap of Le Havre for the return of Calais. Well, as far as the Huguenots was concerned, this changed the status of English from helpful allies to blood-dripping imperialist invaders and, much to English chagrin, the Catholics and Huguenots now combined to chuck the English out. Perfidious Albion? Perfidious Frankier, more like. The English surrendered and slunk back home. There was a certain lack of glory in their return. The end of this enterprise now starts 20 years or more before the English will attempt again to send any army anywhere. Partly, this was due to a realisation that the English military organisation was just simply not up to it. Poorly trained soldiers, out-of-date armaments and out-of-date strategy. Archers still formed a large part of the army and their arrows could not pierce the armour of the heavy cavalry used on the continent. The English did not combine pikemen and cavalry, a staple tactic now of continental armies. The Privy Council realised they were simply not in a state to take on the big boys. Changes were made in the training of the armed bands that formed the backbone of the English militia, but until physical intervention became crucial, the Privy Council preferred to operate secretly and through things like financial assistance rather than war. OK, that is enough on foreign stuff for this week, I think. Cecil won, Dudley naught, I think. But the crashing and burning of the French adventure seems to have damaged Dudley's reputation with the Queen not one jot. As far as that debate about policy is concerned then, the adventures in both Scotland and France could be presented through either lens, support for the Protestant cause as being primary or the search for security being primacy, and maybe that is the answer. The both are important, and when push comes to shove, they tend to overlap. Security for England is much more likely to be offered by Protestant allies than by Catholics. Okay, fine. You can rest assured that we will come back to Scotland and the story of Mary. In fact, 
we'll be progressing the story next time. Also in the next episode, rather spookily, is a bit of a chat about the role of Parliament and where we are with that. I say spookily because Andrew on Facebook just the other day suggested, hey, how's about a bit more on constitutional history? Well, by golly. Until then, everyone, good luck and have a great fortnight. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 